Hi there, it's Vic Francis here from Shaw Vineyard Church. I'm so glad that you were able to join us today for our latest Fano podcast. All of September at church, we're going to be looking at aspects of celebrating family and in its biggest sense, just what Fano is. So we hope you'll join us week by week. And if you miss one, you can catch up either on this podcast or on our website, svc.org.nz. Right now, though, here is the latest of our series, and I do hope you'll enjoy it. I feel very odd introducing our speaker today because she's my wife of 35 years, so it seems seems unusual. We pastored the church together for 23 of those 25 years. Over the last couple of years, Fran's been uh, involved in, a, in another ministry training spiritual directors, and and um, but it's a great privilege and pleasure to have her speaking to us this morning on this Father's Day, and you kind of get the you get the connection a bit as you go. So this is Fran, and she's great. Well, that's very nice. Um, Etefano, brothers and sisters. It's so lovely to be together. And I love that sort of traditional greeting that is it's in the liturgies, it's in the scriptures, uh, that in the context of uh, faith, we are brothers and sisters to one another. And here we are in a season of paying attention to family, to what it means to be connected to one another, to others to our friends, to the wider community, to belonging here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to the human family, and even our interconnectedness with all that is. Uh, the reo word for that is whakawhānau nātanga, and I love how that rolls so roundly off my tongue. But we belong to everything. We don't exist in isolation from anything, and we're waking up once again, to the significance of what it means to care for the environment and all that is around us, and that we're responsible for some of that. So Fano holds all of that together. And we exist in a network of relationships, and those threads bind us together. St Paul in the Scriptures used a stronger word than threads. He talked about bonds. We are tied to one another with an unbreakable, not a, not a thread you can just snap, but we are tied to one another with bonds of love. So I think that's the most beautiful thing, and we're leaning into those bonds of love this morning. Um, even as we hold some of the complexity and emotional terrain of a day like today, we're leaning into those, those bonds of love. Father's Day is easy for some and, and difficult for others, so we're holding the tension of that mix of emotions. But you can't get away from the fact that fathers and mothers, mummies and daddies, are the origins of Fano. So I'm loving the opportunity to take a look at the unique contribution of fathers to our spiritual Fano and to our whakapapa. If you were here on Mother's Day, you'll know that Vic called his sermon The Inspiration of Women. And he pulled out all the stops. I thought I listened to it because I was away in Melbourne. But the affirming of women and girls here in our community at Shaw Vineyards, but also every girl, every woman back through time. And he celebrated with you the return to us of the female apostle, Junia, Yes, she's got her name back. She's not Junias. She's not a man. She's in the scriptures. She was imprisoned with Paul. She was probably married to Andronicus, and they were great servants of Jesus in the first days of the church. So he talked about Junia, and he also talked about the apostle 
to the apostles, who is Mary of Magdala. So this is a clear indication that God didn't see women as unreliable, fickle, flaky, or weak. She is commissioned at the tomb by Jesus himself to take the message of his resurrection to the boys. She's still apostle to the apostles. So she sits above them. If, it, if there's a hierarchy, she's up there. So anyway, today I'm taking a leaf out of Vic's songbook and I'm going to return the favour and sing the praises of men and the inspiration of men, men who have inspired me through their generous, humble, tenacious use of their gifts and the demonstration of their deep love for Jesus, which is just an irresistible thing and how it's shaped me and perhaps even is shaping you. Um, so I'm going to start with this guy, just, just briefly. <laughs> when we got married back in the olden days, he had the biggest beard that you could imagine, bigger than Graydon's. It was a big beard. And occasionally he was known to preach on the streets in Highbury, and that was awkward. <laughs> My mother said to me, not a Christian, she said, I think you married John the Baptist. <laughs> That was really confirmed when she saw the photo of his baptism. It's like, whoa, beard, robe, the whole thing. Anyway, <laughs> oh, I was going to find a photo, but I didn't have time. Anyway, I might post it on Facebook. Um, <laughs> but more about John the Baptist shortly. We will be going there. However, if you want the truth, Vic will tell it to you. But only if you ask. If you want his wisdom, he will share it with you, but only if you ask. He has no hubris, no big ego, no alternate subversive agenda. He is a humble man. He is honest. He likes to take people, as he says, at face value rather than speculating about them. He is a generous giver, and he just finds the deepest satisfaction in serving. But he is also smart, so don't underestimate that he's just a server and doesn't do the thinking. He's got, the, he's got it all up here, and he's incredibly unselfish. I think the thing that inspires me most about Vic is his ability to have difficult conversations in a really kind way. And I've seen him do it over and over again. And in all the years of pastoral ministry, there have been some pretty hefty convos. And um, he's been so amazing in going towards those with uh, love, compassion. But it's integrity that takes him there, and that's his highest value. And so the other thing, though, that I really appreciate about Vic is that he sees in me things I do not see in myself. And that has been a constant source of wonder to me. So... Thanks for that. Turning to other inspiring men now. Don't get me started on my boys. You'll be here all day. Other inspiring men, though. There's a letter in the New Testament um, written to a congregation of new believers in this sort of brash and go-ahead city called Corinth. It's full of hustlers and traders and business. It's not an old city like Athens or Rome, which has got generations of gentry and old money. Corinth is new and bright and shiny, and it's full of new money and a lot of ambition. And St. Paul founded the congregation there 
along with others who came along afterwards to help him, guys like Apollos and Cephas. That church was a mixed bag of ethnicities and people of different faith backgrounds, as churches are supposed to be. We're supposed to be a mixed bag. That's the point. That's why we need those bonds of love tying us together, because otherwise we'd just separate off into little cliques, which is exactly what happened in Corinth. But they defined their cliques by who they felt their guru was. So they were saying, oh, well, I'm with Paul, and I'm with Apollos, and I'm with Cephas, and this one baptised me, so I'm only going to listen to him. And then they ended up in a closed loop of only listening to one another. And Paul hears about this, and he writes to them. And he says pretty much that it makes me so sad to hear that you've kind of fallen into this kind of factionalism. And then in the fourth chapter of this letter, he says... For although you may have 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, remember that you only have me as your father. For I was the one who brought you to Christ when I preached the gospel to you. What he's leaning into here is what was happening in Corinth. Is, um, you know, it's a Greco-Roman environment. Boys, sons of the household, turn 16, time to go off to the tutor to be taught how to become an orator, to be a responsible citizen, to be a man in the culture. And they were taken from home to their tutor by a guide, a pedagogue. Uh, a, this is the same word that is used here in other translations as teacher. So this is the person really that would hold their hand in a metaphorical way and take them to their tutor who did the actual teaching. N.T. Wright's translation of this says, so though you have many babysitters, you only have one father. So he's really drawing their attention to the fact that they're listening to the wrong voices inside their own closed bubble, and that just by listening to one another, that's a form of babysitting. It's not really coming from the, the father's heart. He says, I'm your father. So they were tuning him out and only listening to themselves. They weren't grown up enough to not need him anymore. But the way he approaches it is to use the language of being a father. And he appeals to them as a father, and he says over and over through the letter, my dear family. And so he's drawing their attention to the importance of his role in their life as a spiritual father. So he says, you might have a gazillion babysitters. The relationship is not the same with the hired help as it is with your natural dad. So that's pretty significant. And so what that leads us to then is that there are fathers in our faith. And this is a big part of the Christian tradition. We do have a whole raft of guys that are called the fathers. And so we're going to not only treat actual fathers as special today, but we're going to pay a little bit of attention to our spiritual fathers. So these are men who made a really significant contribution to the people around them. But not only that, um, they helped us understand who Jesus is, what God really did in becoming one of us, the incarnation, what it looks like to love Jesus. Well, it looks like love, pretty much. And that because it's love, you would be prepared to die for it. They figured out stuff like the nature of God and the Trinity. They figured out what should be in the Bible and what shouldn't. They unpacked what it meant to balance earthly citizenship with also being a citizen of God's kingdom. They also gave us language and words and thinking for what it is we believe to be true of God and of ourselves, and those are called the creeds. So these men are the fathers. 
So there are the apostolic fathers, the great fathers, the Greek fathers, the Latin fathers, the Syrian fathers, and the desert fathers. There's quite a few. You can still read their stuff. So where we are today can be direct, directly traced back through our spiritual whakapapa to these men. These fantastic, brave, adaptable, intelligent men. They're not just dead guys from the past, but they're living members of the body of Christ with you and I. Physically, not here, obviously, but in Christ, in that mysterious body of whom Christ is the head, they are still with us. And their thoughts, even if you don't know it, circle in your head. And sometimes their words will be on your lips. And the really lovely part is that their Jesus is in your heart and mine. So we're going to look at two men. One technically isn't a father. Details, details. I'm including him just because he's so darn inspiring. <laughs> and so... The memorial of his death this Wednesday, has just gone. It was this Wednesday. He was beheaded in the fort of Machairus. John the Baptist is the first member of the Christian community, really, to be given a special day of remembrance. John is the first prophetic voice in hundreds of years for the Jewish people. And he is this incredible bridging person. So he stands with one foot. He's the last of the old covenant, the first covenant. And then he's also, his other foot is, he's the first voice of the New Testament, of the new covenant. So he's, he sits in this incredible place, bridging the two. And I love about John, and I, I can totally geek out on icons, so I'm just not going to get started. But here we have this incredible representation of these, these two unborn ones, one acknowledging the lordship of the other, which happened when Mary went to visit Elizabeth. So you've got John with his little head bowed in his mum's womb, kind of acknowledging the lordship. Jesus is making the sign that I am Jesus towards his cousin. And these two grew up together. They knew each other really well. Often they're depicted uh, as children where whole, there's the, the staff that's sort of a stylized shepherd's crook, but it's also kind of bizarrely the, the cross, but then it's also got a victory flag flying from it, and there's also a ram or a little lamb. And that tells you a whole lot about what's going on. And, and little John, he's already wearing the wild, the skin of the wild animal that sort of foretells his Nazarite vow and how he's going to be a, a prophet. So Jesus is the four... Uh, John is the forerunner. So we send out save the dates or we get notifications. Well, in the ancient world, the forerunner was an actual guy and would run ahead going to the towns and villages saying, Bob Dylan's coming or the emperor's coming or look busy. I don't know. But they would run ahead and they would literally make the announcement. John is that for Jesus. So that's, that is his role. So he is the one preparing the way for the one who's actually only a few months younger than him and that they knew each other so well. I just think this is so fascinating and amazing. So John was never going to march to the beat of anyone's drum but God's. I think that's so incredible. He called out the pharisaical hypocrites. 
He welcomed the ordinary people who heard his message, people from different faiths even, not just Jewish people, but he just called them to a a cleansing of the heart that readied them to receive the next message that was coming, which is about beholding the Lamb of God. So John totally got that the message of Jesus was going to transcend John's own message He was not screwed up about that at all. And that um, there's just this most incredible uh, shift because John had his crowd of disciples before Jesus ever had disciples. Jesus ran with John's crowd and emerges out of that. And John baptizes him. And Jesus begins to gather his own group of disciples and it rolls on from there. So there's this incredible relationship going on. But even John had doubts, imprisoned for his fearless calling out of the immorality of King Herod. He's chucked in prison and in that terrifying place, he questions uh, whether or not he's got it right. And so I really like that the humanity is in there, that he was really fearful and, and wondering whether he, he missed it somewhere along the line. So he sends a disciple, one of his own, to talk to Jesus. And Jesus sends back them. Oh, so what does he say? Are you the one to come? Or should we look for someone else? And Jesus sends back the message. Tell him, the blind see, the lame walk. The good news is preached to the poor. Jesus uses the words of a messianic prophet to communicate with a messianic prophet. And John just goes, okay, it's on, it's happening, and I'm good with it. And then his head's chopped off. And it's displayed as a party piece. Imagine if we never heard the words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the brokenness of the cosmos. Or, He must increase and I must decrease. Or, I am not even unfit to untie the strap of his sandal. I couldn't even be an adequate slave for this one. John never married, never became a father. Or did he? I think he did. I think we're his kids. What we're going to do is we're going to fast forward not very far, just to AD 69. And there's a little fella born in Alexandria whose parents give him an awkward name, Polycarp. But it means fruitful. He grows up, he becomes the Bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern day Turkey and the church at Smyrna is mentioned in the Bible, he becomes what's known as an apostolic father. So he, he lived within living memory of the apostles. So Polycarp is evangelized by John, not the Baptist, but Peter, James, and John. John, John the beloved disciple, is the evangelist to Polycarp. So Our Christian faith started as an oral tradition. It was what one heard and passed on to the other, like Māori oral tradition, the stories and the truths. And so Polycarp is one of those who was taught by someone who had had 
actual relationship with the living, earthly Jesus. So those were his influences, but he never actually met Jesus himself. So like John, he stands as a bridge. So he is the last of those to have connection with an actual apostle, someone who knew Jesus personally, and then he's the first of that second generation of believers who are doing it entirely from the heart, from faith, because of what they heard and believed and received. So he stands in this incredible spot himself. His church in Izmir in Turkey still exists. I've been in it. And so these are real people and real places. So Polycarp communicates to those around him who Jesus is. Uh, he wonderful task of uh, raising up new believers. And he is one of the first, or no, he is the first of that generation whose writings we still have. So he's not one of the gospel writers or like Paul writing letters um, that are in the Bible, but he wrote letters and we still have them. And also his death spoke volumes. So Polycarp's story. By now he's an old man. And Rome is hardening towards Christians whom they consider to be atheists because they've rejected the gods. And they reckon Christians are a threat to the imperial order, which they are. Several Christians in Smyrna have already been taken and killed. Now they figure, let's go for the big names. So they're out for the bishop, and they want Polycarp. So Polycarp's companions and church members say, let's go to the country, let's get you out of the city, and they find a farmhouse in the country, and Polycarp stays there. And while he's there, he's, he's praying and um, he has a vision in which his pillow bursts into flame around him. This is three days, actually, before he's arrested. So this, this, in this vision, the pillow bursts into flame and he says to his companions, I am going to be burned alive. So obviously the friends are saying, we need to go, we need to find somewhere safer. We have got to get you out of here. Um, but he says, no, I'm not going to run. So the uh, soldiers arrive at the door wanting to find Polycarp and arrest him. And he's there, sure enough. And they know he is because two slaves have already been tortured to get the information. And so Polycarp simply says when they arrive, God's will be done. And he goes downstairs and he asks for refreshments to be served to them. So they, they come in, and the one thing he asks, he says, can I have an hour, just an un, one uninterrupted hour in which I can pray? And they go, yeah, okay. <laughs> so Polycarp, being Polycarp, prays aloud in their presence for two straight hours. And he prays so profoundly, so full of grace and the Spirit, and so beautifully that those soldiers now don't want to arrest him. But they have to. So they stick him on a donkey and they take him back into the city and they come to the city gates and the uh, local chief of police who has 
seems to be the go-to bad guy name. He is called Herod. So he's there with a carriage and it's got other people in it, but they put Polycarp in because he's old and he's spent hours on the donkey. So anyway, in, in the carriage, Herod tries to convince Polycarp to recant his faith. And he, he says to him, what harm is there? What harm is there in just saying the words, sprinkling the bit of incense, and then, you know, I can, I can let you go. You've just got to acknowledge Caesar, make a sacrifice, and then you can avoid death. Um, Polycarp tries to ignore them, but they, they keep banging on about it, and, and they even bizarrely threaten him. And in the end, he just says, I'm not going to do it. So they threw him out of the carriage, and he hurt his leg. Then he has to walk to the arena. So this isn't like our justice system. When you're arrested, you're just taken straight to the arena. The mob are there baying for your blood. The proconsul is there to make the decision and it's made in the moment and you live or die in the moment. He is on his way to that. So they help him get into the arena. His friends are around him. And as he goes through the gates into the arena, he hears a voice and the other vo- the, the people with him heard it also. And it says, be strong, Polycarp. Play the man. So the proconsul is there to try him. And it goes against his grain to execute a venerable old man. And let's pop Polycarp up now. Oh, no. I'll just leave that there. We'll see Polycarp in a minute. No, we'll see him now. There we are. So he's trying to convince Polycarp now to make the sacrifice to Caesar. He says, respect yourself, respect your age. Swear by the divine power of Caesar. Just say, away with the atheists, and you can go home to your bed. (laughs) So that was something they had to say. Away with the atheists. So it's a way of separating themselves from everyone that they loved, those bonds of love, rejecting that, really. Away with the atheists is denying your own community of faith even though you don't think they're atheists. So what does Polycarp do? He looks around the arena and he raises his finger and he looks at at everyone around and he says, away with the atheists. That is not what the proconsul was after. (laughs) So he goes on again. Just curse Christ, say the oath and I'll let you go. And this is what Polycarp says. This is one of the most famous sayings in Christian history, really, or statements. 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The very king we've been singing about this morning. 86 years I've served him. How can I blaspheme him? So it's it's so profound, and it really says something here. We've got... Caesar, one kind of king, and we've got Jesus, another kind of king, and they are set up in opposition to one another. So that's kind of an important point. The proconsul says, I've got the wild animals right here. I can throw them to you now. I have lions. I have bears. I have whatever. And Polycarp uh, says, go ahead. And the proconsul says, well, I can have you burned alive. And Polycarp said, look, you know who I am and that I'm a Christian. If you want to know about my king... Let's sit down and have a proper conversation. Otherwise, I'm not afraid of your fire, but you should be. So the next step in this whole process is it has to be announced three times to the crowd that Polycarp has said, I am a Christian. 
the crowd goes mental because that's actually what they wanted to hear. And they are saying that he has to die because he is the father of the Christians. Yes, he is. And all the Christians are destroying their gods. Well, they kind of are. So what happens is people just run around to the surrounding bathhouses and workshops and they just grab wood and they, they set it around Polycarp as he's standing there. So he calmly uh, takes off his belt and his robe uh, and he bends down to try and take off his shoes. But he's old now and he can't, he can't actually get down that far anymore and he's hurt his leg. So it's just this moment of real pathos and his face they recorded as being beautiful and calm, which was very unnerving for the proconsul. So the wood is around him and they jam a stake in behind him so that they can nail him to it so he doesn't run when it gets super hot. And he says, leave me as I am. He who gives me power to endure the flames will help me to remain in the fire. I don't need your nails. So he put his hands behind him, not behind the stake, but just behind him, and they bound him, just his hands, like this, behind him, like a ram for a burnt offering, his companion said. And he prayed the sincere prayer that we can still read and pray ourselves today if we want. And they also wrote down this account of his death that you are hearing right now. His is the first death to be witnessed and written down in this way so that we can all benefit from his faith and see how God graced him for what he would endure. So the fire was kindled. And the flames billowed out round him, they said, like a great sail filled with air. And he stood like gold in the refiner's fire or a beautiful loaf in the midst of an oven, they said. And there was a beautiful aroma, not the smell of burning flesh, but it smelt like incense, something rich and expensive and from the church, from a holy place. Polycarp had to die. There was no escaping this. So an executioner ran in and stabbed him to death. But they did kill dear Polycarp. But what he did then was he bled so much he put the fire out. <laughs> His friends and congregation witnessed the whole thing. They wrote it down and it was published within a year of his death in 156. And they concluded, here indeed was one of God's chosen ones, the amazing martyr Polycarp, the apostolic and prophetic teacher in our time, bishop of the church in Smyrna. But to me, there is nothing more inspiring than a man who lets love lead him where he does not want to go. John the Baptist let love lead him where he didn't want to go and he was afraid. Polycarp let love lead him where he didn't want to go. He didn't want to get in the fire, he didn't want to die. But this was where he was going and he let love lead him there. Playing the man didn't mean manning up, hardening. It meant softening himself opening himself freshly to the relationship with Jesus because it's about Jesus. It's not about a principle. It's about how loved he is. And the same with John the Baptist. They knew Jesus. He was their king. He was the one, the promised one, the fulfillment of God's promises. And they let Jesus and love lead them where they didn't want to go. 
and men who do that are the best men on the face of the earth. So these are two of our fathers, people. And I wonder if the fathers are asking today, how is your relationship with Jesus? How's your relationship with the king? Where's that at? Has it become something in your head and is around principles? Has it got a bit stuck in a dark prison somewhere where you're fearful? We can allow ourselves to think about the question of where our relationship is at. So as we come into a close, I just want to... I felt like God had highlighted some things this morning, and I'll run them past you, then we're going to sing. The service will be over, but if you would like prayer for any of these things, then just stay. The coffee will still be on, but I know it's Father's Day and you've got things to head away to, but I want to give this opportunity. So just listen now to this. John the Baptist, I feel, this morning, if you like, through God, is asking, do you desire a fresh vision of God? Do you need a fresh vision of Jesus? Jesus is God. And maybe it's just got a bit stale or a bit stuck or a bit lost. And John the Baptist is saying to you this morning, behold the Lamb of God. So just see if that might be you. We can't give you that fresh vision, but we can pray that your eyes will be opened freshly to where life is. Are you in a difficult situation? Polycarp says, open yourself to Jesus' love for you. Jesus' love for you is God's love for you. You don't need to harden up. You need to soften up. Love gives courage. So if that's you, then we can't give it to you, but we'll ask God to. And the last thing that Oh, two other things. One is that Jesus is, and Polycarp demonstrates this so beautifully, Jesus is the most faithful of loves. If you feel let down, even let down by God, let's open ourselves again to Jesus, who is the most faithful of loves. 86 years I've served him and he's never done me any harm. That's the Jesus you want. Um, and the other, the last thing, if you're in a very complex situation and you just don't really know which way to turn these guys know that situation there jesus took them through it we will pray that the same can be true for you thanks so much for listening we do hope you enjoyed it if you would like in any way to interact with that if you'd like to make contact with me i'd love to hear from you my email address is vic at sbc.org.nz alternatively if you'd like to be part of our shore vineyard whanau either for a one-off or on a more regular basis we meet at 10 o'clock and six o'clock every sunday 252 forest hill road and you get the whole church experience then you're able to have your kids in our children's program your youth in our youth program and you get worship and all of the other things that are so important as part of a church. So keep in touch, uh, continue to listen if you'd like to on the podcast, uh, on our website svc.org.nz, uh, maybe even look at some of the other things that we're doing. So God bless you, it's been our privilege to connect with you in this way. Thank you.